Third chapter of the book of Exodus. Now, Bo now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. I have a footnote that has to the rear part. Now that's a long way from anywhere. To the west side of the wilderness. I love that, the thought of that. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and beheld the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now, see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, all the ites. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. I suppose that in all the Old Testament story, there is not a more dynamic passage than the one I've just read. I hope that you sense the excitement of this verse, this passage. I want to just spend a second in review. That's a morning, this morning's sermon. I, drop there. I don't need that one. I want, to spend, I want to spend a minute in review, first of all, to um, get you to talk back with me and tell, you, tell me what the theme of the book of Exodus is. The theme of Exodus is redemption. The definition of redemption is to purchase with a view to freedom so that redemption in Old Testament life is a purchase with a view to freedom. There is a principle that we have established with concerning homiletics or Bible study, and that principle is that you get the principle of the principles of the Christian life taught in principle in the New Testament. 
and you get the principles of the Christian life pictured in illustration in the Old Testament. So that what you have in principle in the New Testament, you have illustrated in the Old Testament. If you can get a hold of that, the Old Testament will come alive. Now there is more to the Old Testament than just an illustration of a New Testament principle, but at the heart of Old Testament and, uh, uh, interpretation is the basic principle that you have a principle illustrated with an Old Testament illustration. So you look back on what is happening in the Old Testament now from the New Testament age to see how they were seeing tight or pictured what was yet to come. Now last Sunday night we talked about the fact that, that Moses had this concept of God that he gained from his mother and this idea of God that he gained from his mother was that God was this decisive God who acts in history and that he, has a very, he had a very special plan for Israel, the people of God. And even though he was being raised in Pharaoh's palace, his concept of God was this God who acts decisively in history with a view to a special feeling concerning the Jews. And after having grown up and seeing his people suffer as he did and saw their, their oppression, and one day he, he, he was out and he, he saw an Egyptian kill one of the Jews, he, in the back of his mind was this concept of God, that God acts decisively and that's the way he acts. Now it's time to force his hand here. I'm going to be the catalyst if I take matters in my own hands and I, I, I kill this Egyptian, then God will finally show his, Himself and He'll act decisively as is His nature. By the way, parenthetically, it's my humble and accurate opinion that that's what Judas was doing when he betrayed Jesus. I deeply, I have a deep belief that Judas had a concept of Jesus that he was the one who was going to deliver the Jews from Roman bondage. And he couldn't figure out why Jesus wouldn't go ahead and do it. And so he betrayed Jesus to the crowd with this thought in mind. Now he'll have to do what he's come to do. Now he'll have to show himself as the deliverer of the Jews. I think Moses had this concept of God that if I respond this way, God will come down now and He'll set us free. It was a very immature and inaccurate and incomplete concept of God. And so God took Moses out to the backside of the desert to teach him some, some things. He, he took him out to, uh, to a kind of an Aggie college an agricultural university, the school of God on the rear side of the desert. And he was teaching him two basic things. One was the utter folly of human resources. I want you to get this. The utter folly of human resources and the need for utter, complete dependence upon God. The utter folly of human resources and the utter need for utter dependence, complete dependence upon God. 
And he taught him after 40 years of doing the same old thing on the backside of the desert that communion with God is the first requisite of any man God uses. Now you can reduce that down to 24-hour period to this point to say that, commun that, that time with God, much communion with God is the first requisite for every day. Let me say this, I know I'm indicting myself when I do it, that the measure of your Christian life is your quiet time. It's not how many times you come to church, how often you go out and witness, visit, how many people you win to Christ, how much you read, you know, how many books about the Bible you read, your knowledge of the Bible, even your memorization of Scripture. The measurement of your spiritual life is your quiet time. And so out there on the back side, the rear side of the desert, God gave him these instructions, spent some time with him, 40 years. Now it's time for God to act in history. And so God comes down. You need to remember this, that for wherever... That, you know, whatever we are, how, how big we get, God always has to come down to get to us. And so God came down to the desert. He came down to the desert to effect redemption, to begin this great work of redemption, which is the story of the Bible. And there are several Im impacts of that, several things that impact that. One is the need of it. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. Verses 7 of chapter uh, 3, but I want to go back and pick up verse 23 of chapter 2. Now read this with me. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. I love it. He heard their cry. He remembered His covenant. He saw their need, and He took notice of it. He heard their sighs. I hope you understand that every sigh that you sigh goes up to the ear of God and every groan you groan He hears. Now some of us have been seeing a little television and the Somalia um, tragedy. You, you, you don't, you've seen that on TV. And uh, I'm going to have to confess to you every time that comes on what I want to do is look away and there are these little children who are literally skeletons. I mean, it's absolutely indescribable, the tragedy of that, that terrible, terrible thing that's happening in the world. And I was watching the other night on the, on the news, and this piece came on about the tragedy that's going on there. And I heard these little children crying. And I thought to myself, how that must break God's heart a true, true story. I really did think how that must, you know, affects me like that, that I want to turn away. I have a cold heart. 
And, and every sigh and every groan and every cry of this world he hears. He heard their cry. And he saw, he, it says he saw their plot. The word is rock. And it means, it, it has a deeper sense than just to see with your eyes. It means to, 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 to experience something. Let me give you an example of it. Just flip over to Psalm 89, and we'll give you just an illustration of that word. Psalm 89, verse 48. And Psalm 89, verse 48 reads like this. What man can live and not see death? And that word there in the Hebrew is ruach. And it doesn't mean that, that he's not saying what person can live and not see somebody else die. What he's saying is, what person can live and not die? Or what person can live and not experience death? And what God is saying is, not only did I hear their sighs, not only do I hear your groan, but I experience it. And, and then he goes on with another Hebrew word, and he stacks meaning on top of meaning. Not only did he see it with experience, experientially did he see it, but it says that he took notice of it. And the word is yadak in the, in the Hebrew, and it means to know by personal identification. Personal identification. It has all the energy of love and pity. It has the idea of empathy. It's like he felt it himself. It's like he was there to know it, to experience it, to feel it. So that all of, these, all of this pain that these Egyptians inflicted upon Israel was inflicted upon God. And all the suffering they endured, He endured. And, and what He's saying is that He becomes personally involved in an empathetic way with everything we experience as if He was there to experience it, which He is, of course. And then comes the kicker as this thing crescendos. He, he says that he remembered. Now what he remembered is his covenant with Abraham. I was going to read it tonight, but the time is fleeing away. So you'll read it if you will. It's in Genesis chapter 17, and it's verses 1 through 8. And it was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he told Abraham, this nation of yours that's going to come out of your loins is going to be as plentiful as the sand on the sea and as glorious and as majestic as the stars in the sky. That was his promise. Now the critical issue is not did these people please or displease God. The critical issue is not their faithfulness. The critical issue is His faithfulness. Now watch this. He remembered His Word to them. And He's faithful to His Word. And His Word to them was that I'm going to build out of you a nation that's not just going to be a lot of you because you can have a lot of people in bondage, but it's going to be the glorious people like the stars that, that sparkle in the sky. And He remembered that promise and He's loyal to His Word. Now watch this. Our security is dependent not upon our faithfulness, but upon His and sometimes people come to me and they talk to me about 
this, and, and they, they feel this tension, they struggle with the doctrine of eternal security, or we call it once saved, always saved, and, and we worry about, can I hold out, and can I be faithful? Well, you know, good news, it, your security, your redemption is based upon His promise to you, not your faithfulness to Him. And I'm persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. There's a need for redemption. God feels that need because He's personally involved with man. All right? What about the God who redeems? Now here's where this story gets, you know, it's magnificent and it's important. Verse 2 it says, And the angel, underline or circle that definite article, the angel. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. Now, I'm going to take my time. We don't get through with this. We can pick it up next time. Whenever you see the, the, the definite article, the angel of the Lord, and that Lord is kept, it's called a theophany. Now, a theophany is a, here's the definition of a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God in human form. A manifestation of God in human form. It is the appearance of God in the form of a man. Okay? A theophany is a manifestation of God by actual appearance. The appearance of God in the form of a man. Now the angel of the Lord which appeared to him in blazing fire, the angel of the Lord, in my understanding of the scripture, in my understanding of a theophany, is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now hear me, hear me, hear me here, listen to me. What appeared to Moses in the fire was the, was the appearance of God in the form of a man, the pre-incarnation, incarnation. Now you say, that sounds pretty far out to me. You look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him. So he identifies this voice in the fire as the Lord in caps. Now that is Messiah in the Old Testament. It is the, the, the New Testament counterpart is Christ, so that the one who appeared to Moses in the blazing bush was the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord Jesus appearing to Moses. Now he appeared to him in a blazing fire. Now listen to this word here. The, the word is translated from the, from, from the, from the Hebrew shakan, shakan. Blazing fire, dwelling in the bush, was the shakan. Now, does that, some of you uh, old-timers, can, can, what do you think about when you hear that word, shakan? Does that ring a bell? What does that remind you of? Shakana. Shakana. And, and let, me, let me, we'll just put a little hold on that, and we'll get to that in a minute. This fire was the Shekhan, the Shekinah, okay? Now before this uh, Moses, this man could be sent forth on mission, 
He must first behold the ineffable glory of the Lord. Now there is an example of this in Isaiah 6. So turn to chapter 6 of Isaiah, if you will, right quick. Isaiah 6. And if you um, have been around the Baptist church for a little while, uh, long as some of us have, this Isaiah 6, you know what happens here. Let me read it to you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, L-O-R-D, Lord, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out with the while the temple was filling with smoke. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hands, taken from the altar with tongs, touched my mouth with it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. Now there is a marvelous parallel between Isaiah 6 and what was going on in the backside of the desert. Because God was about to deal with Egypt in holiness, which is the very nature of God Himself. Now, not only was this one who was indwelling this bush the pre-incarnate Christ, but He was the holy God. And He was going to deal with man at the level of His holiness. And before Moses, before Moses was going to go out to minister and to evangelize, he needed to understand how God was going to deal with Egypt. He was going to deal with them on a level of holiness. Now what is man to do in the presence of a holy God? Isaiah said that these seraphim covered their eyes and they covered their feet. And God told Moses, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. And Moses put his hands over his eyes because he didn't want to look on God, this holy God. Why do you suppose he told him to take off his shoes? Because that was the connection between the man and the world. It was a custom in the East that when you went into somebody's house, you either took off your sandals or you dusted them off because you didn't bring into the house any of the world's defilement. And what God is saying is this, that when you come into my presence, you must have no defilement about you. Now let me just say a word about how we approach God. I have a feeling that sometimes we kind of nonchalantly come in here. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of talk. And there is a lot of this, you know, there's a kind of a blasé attitude. And I have a feeling that some of us come into the presence of a holy God with defilement. 
And what Moses is learning about God is this, that this God, even though He is so identified with us that He feels our suffering, He is unapproachable and inaccessible under certain conditions. And He is unapproachable and inaccessible when man has defilement, when there is sin in his life. He is a holy God and He deals with man at the level of His holiness. That means that man must come to God on God's terms. Now look at back at verse 4. There's a beautiful play on words there. He says this word for bush in verse 4 is a word that means thorn bush. Now thorns are the lasting reminder of the curse. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, we're reminded that these thorns and thistles are a reminder of the curse. Write this little statement down. In the place, into the place of the curse entered our blessed substitute. Into the place of the curse entered our blessed substitute into the presence of the suffering of man, he came. Now notice something about the person that God calls to effect redemption. Verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Would you listen to this next statement? When the Lord saw that he turned aside, by Henry Blackaby, not just in reading his workbook, but in his life you know, itself. I've known Henry for a long time. And, um, I have two claims to fame. One is I played against Bob Lilly, and the second is that I know Henry Blackaby. And uh, we, we, we have been impacted by his life. One of the impressive things about Henry Blackaby is one of the things that he has taught us is that, 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 one of the, that, the, at, that the center of one's walk with God is to, is to find out what God is doing and where God's doing it. Now, you, you'll never know, you'll never, you'll never find where God is and what God's doing if you don't have a natural desire, natural curiosity, find out where He is and what He's doing. It was after he turned aside to look that God called him. Now many of us never see where God is at work because we're too busy looking at something else. And many of us never hear God call because we listen to every other thing. Barrett, Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every bush is afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest stand around picking berries. What she was saying is, is that unless you're looking for this, unless you have a natural curiosity, it causes you to say, I want to see what's happening here and why it's happening. You're going to miss God. Natural curiosity. Second, was a natural sense of availability. I love Ian Thomas' book. Ian Thomas used to be real popular. 
It's kind of faded from the scene. Somebody else is taking his place. He's got a book entitled, with a, with a chapter in it called, Any Old Bush Will Do. Now, Ian Thomas says that there are thousands of bushes out there in the desert, but you know, any one of them would have been all right. God could have used any one of them, but this bush here just happened to be available. For the key to, the, to, to God exposing His sovereignty and His holiness, a life inhabited by God and for God is the life that's just available to Him. It's wonderful to get to preach to all these young people. Somewhat uh, depressing sometimes to, uh, you know, to, to feel like, well, you, you know, how do you get it across that any one of you available to God and for God is all he needs to, to manifest himself in blazing glory. Just your availability. Um, doesn't matter, you know, it's not a matter of your personality-wise or nationality-wise or money-wise or educational-wise or any other-wise. That it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with what you are in, in that relationship. It's your availability. Will you make yourself available to God? That's the issue. Any old bush will do, just if it's available. Notice third, it was a personal call. Verse 4, he says, Moses, Moses, he calls him by name, and there is a task with your name on it out in the halls of heaven. There is a task with your name on it, young people. You know, it's not a stack of, uh, you know, job descriptions and God says to you, well, you know, thumb through those someday and pick out something you'd like to do. There's, no these, there's none of this to whom it may concern job description stuff. There's a task with your name on it. And if you don't do it, nobody else will. Nobody else can. And if you don't do it, then it'll never get done. Now what's funny about that? Come on, give me a break. I'm serious to say, there's a task with your name on it, and if that doesn't, if you don't do it, it won't get done. No, it's a fourth thing. It's a matter of timing. He said in verse 10, look at that, he said, Come now. Would you put a circle around the word now? Come now. Now's the right time. Now for 40 years before, Moses took matters in his own hand and Moses tried to effect the plan that he you know, was convinced God wanted done. Well, it wasn't right time. There is a right time for the providence of God. And he's not to be rushed. It's not our responsibility. It's not our place to rush God irreverently to do something, seek to hurry Him. Brother, it's our place to wait on Him and to wait for Him. And there is a now that is the time within the providence of God. Now it's time for divine intervention. And now it's time for Jehovah to deal with the haughty oppressors 
And now the time is right for the divine providence of God. And in this divine providence, he, has cho- he chooses human instrumentality. He could have sent an angel to Egypt. He could have gone there himself. I mean, he could have, there could have been a theophany in Egypt. God disclosing Him, revealing Himself in human form. But in the providence of God, He has chosen to appoint a human ministry to effect a divine solution. The wonderful thing about it is, is that within the providence of God, there are some of you that God could use tonight to effect the redemption of the world. He said, I will send you. And, and then, he, then, then to make, to, to emphasize it, he said, and, and you, and you underline that human instrumentality, I will send you, and you will be the one who will effect this redemption that I have planned for the world. How do you explain Redemption apart from human instrumentality. How do you explain your own redemption apart from human instrumentality? And then finally, there is the nature of that redemption. And the nature of that redemption is found in verse 8. He said, I've come to deliver you from that land to this land. Now, redemption has two aspects. It has a deliverance from something to something. It is not only to deliver one out of bondage, but to, live, to deliver one to freedom. We're not just saved to get us out of Egypt. We're saved to get us into Canaan. Now, now what, he, what he's talking about when, he, when the Bible talks about Canaan, it's not talking about heaven. That makes good poetry and good hymns to sing about Canaan's fair fair and happy land, but Canaan in the Bible is not a reference to heaven. If that's the case, then Moses didn't make it. Canaan in the Bible is a reference to freedom, to fullness. Talks about a land that flows with milk and honey. He's talking about abundance. He's talking about victory and joy and peace. And this redemption that God brings to human life is a redemption that gets him out of bondage but into this life of fullness and freedom and peace and joy and victory. And if you're not experiencing that, you're either still in Egypt or you have learned to what you've been saved. The nature of redemption is freedom with, with is, is, uh, to purchase with a view to freedom, to fullness, to joy, to victory. That's what we're to live. Now there's an application or three applications. Number one is that you never are beyond the concern of God. You're never beyond the concern of God. Wherever you are and whatever your life circumstance, God cares about you. And He cares about you in the sense that He even feels your pain. 
Second application is this, that God will use you if you'll make yourself available to Him. And He's come to indwell you, not just to indwell you, but to glorify Himself through you, to manifest His holiness through you. But He can't do that unless you make yourself totally available to Him. Now He's not going up and down the aisle of a church trying to find the best talented people or the most gifted, any bush will do, that's available to Him. Third application, redemption is twofold. He saved, to get you, saved you to get you out of something, but that's not all of it. He saved you to get you into something. And that something He saved, to get you in, saved you to get you into is the life that He wants you to have, a life of fullness, joy, victory, peace, and deliverance. I hope you're not living on the wrong side of redemption because there's so much more to it than just being saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us now to apply this truth to our lives. The truth of your call to us, the desire to be indwelt, for us to be indwelt by your glorious and holy power, to be, to find one through whom you can reveal yourself to lost humanity, to, to free the oppressed and the, the suffering. God, I pray that there will be in each of us this passion and desire to be used of God, to be available to you, to turn aside to find where you are and then in your presence make ourselves available. We pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. An invitation invites you to give your heart to Christ tonight. Turn, turn to Him and accept Him as your personal Savior. I want to invite you to come tonight and rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're not living that life that pleases Him. Or maybe you need to join the fellowship of First Baptist Church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.